SAFM Live. The Forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo. It's eight minutes after eight. Thanks for tuning in to AM Live and, of course, to the forum at eight. Just a quick message here from Sis B, who says, I've been meaning to say how wonderful and thought-provoking this series of fora are. Really, really great. Just a pity there are so few women in the mix, but the concept of paper and discussion is ace. Big up to the team. Thank you so much for that. And I must just indicate that we have asked several um, female thought leaders to actually write for us and to come on and explain and uh, we are hoping for at least a few to come through uh, very shortly but in the meantime we continue as I said um, at the beginning we asked a whole series of people, um, a lot of them across the spectrum to write for us, uh, thought leaders in our society to talk to us about the current state of politics in South Africa and how they view the current developments. And we continue that series of conversations this morning. And our guest is Professor Luazi Lushaba from uh, the Department of Political Studies at the University of Cape Town. Now, he's written about what he calls the complex political and economic problems that post-colonial South Africa faces today. Professor Lushawa says that South Africa has not studied the lessons from the rest of the continent and that such lessons uh, would have enabled the country to understand the structural design of post-colonial African states and to avoid some of the pitfalls of nationalist-driven post-colonial reform. So today we examine uh, some of these issues with Professor Loazi Lushaba, who joins us from our Cape Town studio. Thank you so much for your time and for writing for us, uh, Professor Lushaba. I greet black people, I greet all your listeners, and I greet you, and I thank you very much. So... Um, just a reminder for everybody else, if you haven't yet read it, you can go on to safm.co.za and uh, Dr. Lushaba's paper is there. Only 600 words, so you'll be able to read through it uh, fairly quickly. And of course, we will open the line shortly. 0891-104-208 is the call-in number where you can engage Dr. Lushaba on his um, assertions there. And you can also tweet or Facebook us at AM Live on SAFM or at Sakina Kamwendo, or you can send us an SMS to the number 40938, which will be charged at 150 per SMS. So, uh, Dr. Lushaba, let's start here. You say that nationalism in the colonial world does not constitute an autonomous discourse as, uh, and as such it lacks cultural resources, it lacks originality and uh, theoretical existence uh, that may be necessary for us to contemplate a model of society that is different from the one that colonialism engineered. So explain to us how that becomes problematic in contemporary South Africa. Now let us begin here. The problem that South Africa faces today is, I suspect, not a problem of thievery and the problem of Jacob Zuma's ineptitude. Those points are well established. I think that the problem we face is the presentist outlook of thought that is fanned by journalistic commentary that masquerades as thought. If you think back in the history of this country, you would know that protest against colonial structures begins way before the ANC is established, way before nationalism comes into existence. So when, you know, the Hundred Years' Wars are fought in the Eastern Frontier, you have to ask, what was the ideology, quote-unquote, you know, what was the nature of that resistance against colonial rule? To sum it up for you, I suspect that there was something distinct about that kind of protest. It did not seek accommodation with colonialist modernity or with the colonial structures of the state, with the colonial structures of society. That kind of protest sought to transgress the colonial logic of society. Now, when nationalism comes in the late 1800s and, you know, uh, formalizes itself in 1912 into the African National Congress, you have a group of nationalist elites who then assume the same modernist outlook as the colonizers. They are 
project from that moment onwards was not to undo the colonially established structure, but they sought accommodation within it. So they needed to also be sold alcohol. They needed also, you know, to be integrated into the modern structures of colonial rule. And from that moment, they then think of themselves as having the same historic mission as the colonizers, which is to modernize their own people. And so... What they have a problem with in colonialism is not the colonial structure itself. What they have a problem with is that the colonizers, the white settler colonizers, have taken the responsibility to modernize their own people. So the nationalists come and say, no, modernization we want, but it can't be you that modernizes our people. We, the nationalist elite, have the mission, the historic mission to modernize our people, to develop them. And so when nationalism comes into full speed, it sees the rest of the black population or the colonized population as being constantly available for tutorship. These are people who need to be developed, who need to be modernized. Now, at the attainment of independence in 1994, what the nationalist elite does is to supplant the colonialist elite and continue with the same project of modernizing society. Now, what is this nationalist model of society that they internalize as their own? Now, nationalism is an ideology that begins in Europe in the 1600s. Now, what was its precepts? This is at a time when Europe is modernizing. This is at a time when Europe is industrializing. So what nationalism basically seeks to do is to institute in society a modern form of political organization, a modern form of epistemology or knowledge, or a modern form of social organization of society. So it comes with certain assumptions about how societies ought to be structured, how societies ought to, be, ought to function, how political authority ought to be distributed, and how you know, knowledge ought to be generated and distributed in society. Now, when that happens, when nationalism accepts to be modern, it takes virtually that model of 18th century nationalism as its own. It seeks to then implant or replicate or mimic that model in the colonies. Now, here then, I think, is the major problem that South Africa faces. It is that South Africa is the last of African countries to gain its independence in 1994. Why then did we not learn from the other post-colonial African states? Now, my, 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 my considered view here is that if South Africa had availed itself of the possibility of learning from other post-colonial African states, it would have seen that nationalism soon in the post-colonial era runs to ground because it lacks the imagination of building a different society that the colonialists had imagined. Now, what it does is to try and perpetuate the same logic, you know, of, a more, of the model of the modern. And now what that happens is that there is a paradox in that model of the modern. It is that it's assumed that this model is universal. It assumes that all countries want to be like Europe. It assumes that the trajectory of development is unilinear. You move from being traditional to being modern. And so development means leaving behind your traditional past. It assumes that time, a unilinear universal time exists that all societies have to fit themselves through. Now, what then happens is that quickly in the post-colonial era, this model of the modern runs to ground, it loses its creativity, it can no longer hold the imagination of, you know, the recently decolonized societies. People begin to say, it was not this that we thought independence would mean. Liberation should have meant something else, because in the model of the modern, in this unilinear trajectory of development, there is a paradox which is that you see, the development, the underdevelopment of the colonized societies is necessary in order to speak or to announce and pronounce the truth of Europe's development. In this model of the modern, you require the underdeveloped colonial societies to exist because it is they that verify the development of Europe. You understand that Europe is developed or the West is developed because there is a counterfall which is the underdeveloped non-Western world or colonial world. And in this nationalist model, 
there is an epistemological structure that is claimed to be universal or there is a knowledge system that is claimed to be universal. Now, the problem with this knowledge system is that, again, there is an asymmetry in this knowledge system. This asymmetry puts Europe ahead as the model. Europe or the West must always produce the modular example to be replicated or mimicked by, you know, African post-colonial states. Now, we know a copy can never be an original. We know that if you are hoping that to develop, you want to be like the West, the West is not waiting for you. It is developing. It is progressing in its development trajectory. So if you assume that development means for the colonized societies catching up with Europe, you would never catch up with Europe. Over and above the fact that the model of Western development is not an inevitability. It is not that the whole world must of necessity look like the West. It must of necessity develop like the West. Now, nationalism is unable to imagine a different trajectory of societal engineering other than that that is given to it within modernist thought. So that's why I say that the tragic, or rather the, the problem we face is the problem of thought. How would we have avoided this? Two mm. things. If we had quickly, after attaining independence, inculcated a cadre of self-respecting black intellectuals that were not going to pander to this Western episteme, that were going to free themselves, you know, from, this, from the thraldom of this Western episteme, would then have been able to see that everywhere nationalism soon runs to ground. It did so in India, did so in Nigeria, did so in Kenya. The point would have been then if we had a cater of self-respecting black intellectuals, they would have said, wait a moment. We have seen how post-colonial states everywhere else fail. This is the structure of post-colonial states. We must avert it. We have an advantage as South Africa of being the last of colonies to gain its independence. So we have a whole host of examples of failure ahead of us mm. that we need to learn from. But because we have, we lack a self-respecting cater of black intellectuals that would do that, we haven't been able to do that. On the other hand, you have thought in South Africa dominated by white intellectuals. Now, who, for first, are not interested in bringing the South African colonial experience back into a basket of other comparable cases from the rest of the continent. South African exceptionalism continues to guide the premises from which they think. The second point about white intellectuals is that for them, it's self-serving to be presentist and say that the problem is Jacob Zuma, it's corruption, because then it allows us to move away from the structural design of post-settler colonies. The problem in South Africa, I suspect, is a settler colonial structure of the economy of society that we would have been able to interrogate and to deconstruct had we had a cadre of black intellectuals that would have seen it for what it is. So would you say that failure at the level of thought is a failure of capacity to reimagine or is it an inability to recognize the pitfalls of that which you have presented to you? Now, it's a combination of both because nationalism, once you accept nationalism as this ideology that emerges in Europe that is meant to address the existential problems of Europe at that time, you, you then close off the possibility in your mind of thinking about a different kind of society that is structured differently other than the modern society as Europe is. So you have at a structural level of thought, at the epistemic level, the impossibility of thinking differently because your categories, you know, your creative, you know, your, your parlance itself is drawn from this history of European nationalism, which then imposes on you, you know, again, an added burden, which is that for Africa, and South Africa included, you do not have to think about what model of society of development you want. All that you have to do as a nationalist movement is to implement the same script 
that Europe had already written for you. So that is why then I say that nationalism is not, does not have originality in Africa. Nationalism does not have an autonomous you know, character in Africa because it's basically seeking to mimic. So it's not only just capacity. If you say capacity, it minimizes the problem or it bureaucratizes the problem because then we're going to say then perhaps we just need you know, an X number of people. We need a cadre of black intellectuals that are oriented intellectually in a certain way. So it's not your typical, you know, bureaucratic, mm-hmm. liberal notion of capacity where you must send, you know, to the university X number of people. Because the, the, the other challenge is that nationalism's lack of creativity shows itself in this fact. South Africa gains independence in 1994. The nationalist movement then wakes up the following day after April 27 and says that we are going to take black children to the same white colonizers, we say to them, here, take our children, educate them for us. The very same settler colonizers that yesterday despised you, the following day you ask them to train your children at primary and secondary school, but more importantly, you then send them to the same academics in white institutions, you say, here, train for us a critical mass of black intellectuals who are going to help us imagine a different society. What interest do they have to train for you a critical mass of black intellectuals that are going to imagine a different society than the settler colonial society that South Africa is? Well, Dr. Lushaba, optimists would argue that um, as South Africans, we are at a stage where we can claim considerable success in cultivating common values and even patriotism uh, amongst ourselves as a nation. What would your take be on that? Now, it would be to miss the point. I'm not arguing against, you know, patriotism or my point of departure is not patriotism. By the way, we must, re- we must define, um, you know, so that the point makes sense. We must define what patriotism mm-hmm. is. Patriotism is love of country. It's love of a common will, you mm-hmm. know, of, of a country. Now, you do not need to delude yourself. South Africa is not a nation or it's not a united nation. Here you have the white settler colonizers and the black colonized who continue to live their lives, you know, constructed as black and lived as black. And you have on the other side the settlers, the white settlers, who continue to live their lives as white and constructed as white. If you want a more simpler term, lived in living a life of privilege. Now, in this distinction, you have other people who have their humanity in full, the white settlers. You have on the other side, on the, other side the black colonized who are basically non-human, to whom the precepts of humanity do not apply. Now, you see this very well in how we plan our cities, for instance, where white people dwell, where hope dwells, where virtue dwells in the white suburbs, planning happens because you plan for human beings. On the other hand, you have black people who live in squatter camps, who live on top of each other in shacks and, you know, in RDP houses, where there's no planning, because planning is a preserve of one, you know, category of society of human beings. Now, you can never resolve the problems of black people in the squatter camps in locations through service delivery. Those are not problems of service delivery. Those are problems of people treated and considered as less than human on living alongside people who on the other side are treated and living as human beings. Because, so that the point maybe becomes even clearer. If you think back on how the state, the post-colonial state in South Africa, treats black people. There is nothing human in the way in which the modern state treats black people, you know, that suggests that it treats them as human beings. Because I want to suggest to you that if in Marikana, those people who were at the Kopi on that day were white workers, they would not have been shot. Because you do not shoot at human beings. You shoot at animals who are less than human, people who you think of whose lives are having less value. So there is something that white scholars again have done. They obfuscate our misery through Western categories and call us the working class. It was not the working class that died in Marikana. It was black people. If it was the white working class that was protesting there, they would not have been shot, over and above the fact that as white working class, they would not have been put through those conditions that would lead them to protest. 
Well, we're speaking to uh, to Dr. Loazi Lushaba, uh, and he's talking about uh, the lessons that uh, South Africa may have learned post-apartheid, and it seems that we have learned none, according to Dr. Lushaba. What's your take on it? Uh, 0891-104-208. You can also tweet or Facebook us at AM Live on SAFM and SMSs to 40938, charged at 150 per SMS. Let me read some of the messages. Nkosnati Mbetu in uh, Peter Maritzburg says, nationalism, nationalism goes concurrently with good governance. Um, does this exist in African states? Looking at the South African context, political parties now campaigning on racial and tribal lines. So uh, what's your take on that, Dr. Lushaba? Now let, let us unpack the structure of settler colonialism and, you know, good governance. One is that, you know, settler colonies, uh, which South Africa is, by the way, colonialism in the continent took two forms. On the other hand, you had what we call colonies of domination, and on the other, you had what we call colonies of settlement. Colonies of domination existed largely in West Africa. Colonies of settlement were those where the colonizers settled in large numbers and turned those countries into their homes. Now, in settler colonies, what happens is that there is a structure of a society that is constructed. And I'm going to pick just two points um, on that structure. It is that When independence comes in settler colonies, it comes via a protracted struggle of armed struggle of liberation. And the the, the ill um, or the byproduct of that kind of a struggle is that settler colonies, whether it is South Africa, Angola, Mozambique, you know, and Zimbabwe, are all characterized by a political culture that is very tolerant towards violence. Now, I'm raising this even though it sounds unrelated because I want to suggest to you that the political culture, notions of good governance, and all those other things that are required, you know, in order for society to function, are a function of history. Now, the history of South Africa in terms of governance is such that the notion of good governance applies only to white people. Good governance means that you must treat everyone as a human being. And so you must plan accordingly, you know, for everyone as a human being. Now, we haven't seen that this notion applies to black people in South Africa. But curiously for me is the fact that, you know, what happens in settler colonies and in all post-colonial societies, um, here we can generalize also to include colonies of domination, is that there is a structure of perverse incentives that prevails in post-colonial you know, states that we should have realized early. It is that when independence comes, you have on the one side wealth, I mean wealth, not tender money, wealth that is institutionalized, that is able to reproduce itself over generations. You have wealth that remains in the hands of the colonizers, the white settlers in settler colonies. On the other hand, you have the nationalist elite that also wants to accumulate, but has no access to wealth. The only you know, access they have to money is through the state. And what do they do throughout the continent? They primitivize the state. They use the state to accumulate. Because the market where wealth you know, um, is generated remains foreclosed, remains a a monopolized space that is monopolized by the white settlers. Now, what then the nationalist elites do, virtually everywhere in the continent, is that they turn on the state and use the state in order to accumulate. So you have primitive accumulation, you know, for the black nationalist elite, and you have accumulation that happens in the market, you know, uh, for white settlers. Now, then we call this corruption. Now, it is not that it's not corruption. It is that I suspect if we had changed the structure of the economy such that everyone had an equal possibility of reproducing their wealth, you know, as it is done in the market without depending on the state, the discourse would have been a different one. It would not be one that suggests that you have a people that are inherently corrupt because there is some suggestion here that there are people who are inherently corrupt. If we removed, which is a hope that I suppose every South African have, if we removed President Jacob Zuma tomorrow, would the problems of black people be solved in this country? 
pause right there, Prof. Uh, Dr. Lushava. We're going to take a news break. When we come back, we continue the conversation and also open the lines to take your views on 0891-104-208. Norm Samdluli up with the latest news headlines. Thanks, Sakina. The Competition Commission is calling on consumers, small and independent grocery retailers and interested members of society to participate in public hearings into the grocery retail market inquiry across Gauteng. The Commission believes that there are features in the grocery retail sector that may be preventing, distorting or restricting competition and ultimately adversely affecting consumers and households. Cape Town police have appealed to the public for information in their investigation into the murder of yet another child. The body of five-year-old Mine Ntlelekata was found yesterday afternoon under a bridge in Broadway. She was last seen on Saturday afternoon while playing outside her house in the Nomzamo informal settlement. And some EFF supporters have started arriving at the Bloemfontein Magistrates Court where their leader Julius Malema is scheduled to appear. Malema is accused of contravening the Writers' Assemblies Act after he called on EFF members to occupy vacant land. I'll have more details at 9. Traffic on SAFM, your trusted guide to the road ahead. With some uh, protesting uh, just south of Emelathlany this morning uh, through Duva Park area. In fact, just south of Duva Park. So there is some congestion around there, particularly the 544, uh, the major route that will take you out down towards uh, the Creel area. That uh, road currently obstructed. Uh, Joe Berg, there's uh, been a collision involving a JMPD biker. Mike, one south of the Rafira off-ramp. So uh, traffic backing up into that off-ramp, but just holding you up coming down from the uh, Melrose side. Uh, lights out, Heidelberg and Outspan causing delays this morning. And if you're routing into Santon, there's a bit of traffic pressure on William Nickel coming down. Uh, towards Republic Road. Pointsmen on duty, Malabongwe and uh, Republic. So uh, that has taken a bit of the uh, delay out of there. And uh, Vidkoppen Road at uh, Riverbend, those lights still out with some delays as well. If you're driving uh, between Finberg and Bloemfontein this morning, between, in fact, Finberg and the plaza at Fikir de Flay, uh, there is an overturned truck being recovered on the highway. That's likely to cause some delays. Uh, the M2 out of Toti through towards uh, Durban, uh, just uh, starting to ease up a little bit. Uh, the M4 is heavy, though. Big queues this morning. Uh, going in and out of Durban in the Congella area. That's the uh, southern freeway. Uh, both sides of that highway to stand still. And Cape Town, the N2 remaining closed this morning uh, between Muway and the Baden-Powell Drive. So uh, very heavy traffic outbound passing the airport to the closure inbound from Macassar. Uh, you've got a lot of traffic on the old Fora Road, which is the local sort of alternative. And if you're coming south on the R300, you can't turn onto the N2 outbound. Uh, some motorists are just extending delays right down deep into uh, the uh, Mitchell's Plain area. That R300 from Delft. Uh, going through the N2 closure down into Mitchell's Plains. Very heavy backlogging. Rob Byrne, AM Live, Traffic Watch. The Forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo on AM Live, turning the spotlight on the big issues and the people behind them. And thanks for tuning in to the Forum at 8. We continue our series of conversation with thought leaders about the current state of South African politics. And uh, let's read uh, some of the comments coming through uh, about this morning's discussion. Um, Senzo Growai says, we have African professors and doctors who intensely comprehend our state of affairs, but how do we change it? And uh, quite a few people moving in that direction. Um, uh, this one from uh, Tonzana says, the doctor is being too poetic, too simplistic in what he is saying. Why is it that Asia is doing so well post-colonialism and why not Africa? Walter Louis Ryan says that uh, Professor Lushama, uh, uh, the greed of money uh, spawned alcohol, refined food industry and Ponzi schemes, uh, the banks, and it's not color. Um, Then a few others as well coming through. Um, uh, This one from uh, Mags. Mags asks, does your guest have an example of a country, any country, which is not a post-colonialized state as a reference? Uh, we'll certainly put that to Dr. Lushaba. And this one here on the SMS line says, I do not agree with the narrative that there was a plan to develop South Africa according to colonial dictates. Uh, this is misleading. We should not be ha- uh, sh- we should not be having the split of PAC if this was indeed the case. Nelson and 
Stanton says, in 1994, South Africa gained independence from whom? British uh, colonies gained independence from Britain. Uh, so who did South Africa become independent of? Uh, JFK says, Sakina, your guest appears to be racist. To greet only blacks and not others is prejudicial. How can I still try to listen to the rest and give him the benefit of the doubt? Please help because... I'm hearing some valid points here. And then uh, Sergio Bankwan says, we've so many of these professors in Africa always preaching against colonial education, and yet they send their children to the very same schools. And Guguletu says, uh, your guest sounds too intellectual, but it's difficult to accept that African states fail because they follow Europe. Dr. Lushaba? Let, let us begin here. Um, and, 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 and this, this point came to me from your, from your you know, news um, update. One is that, you know, there is an asymmetry that is written into, you know, modernist thought, into the structure of modern thought. This asymmetry always puts Europe ahead, you know, or puts Europe, you know, as an example we must look towards. Now, you know, in this asymmetry, it is not just the geographical place, Europe, that is put ahead as a modular example that we must always follow. In this asymmetry, you have the European and the African written into it. There is a certain asymmetry in the way in which modern institutions, including our modern state in South Africa, relates to the European or to the white settler colonizer in South Africa and in, in the way in which it relates to the black colonized. Now, I do not need to convince anyone that South African modern state, the nationalist-led you know, South African state, treats white people differently the way in which it treats, you know, um, or rather it treats the white settler colonizers differently from the black colonized. This asymmetry you can see. Now you have, you know, white people who commit, you know, you know certain offenses, not crimes, but offenses, that, things that are offensive to society. The whole society, the whole modern structure jumps, you know, when it is a black person that has done that. Now, I I was so piqued, you know, when I saw the Vets University professors assemble, you know, to criticize and to produce a report, you know, on the offensive, undoubtedly offensive, you know, and despicable character and behavior of President Jacob Zuma in relation to the Guptas. But I would have expected also the same professors at Vets University to have done the same thing when Premier Helen Zille said that it was right for us to be colonized. Why didn't they produce reports about how do we come about this kind of modernist thought that assumes that the white European has a God-given duty to civilize us and therefore to colonize us was right because, as Marx said, colonialism brought us into history. Why didn't the same academics do exactly the same thing? It is because there is an asymmetry that is written into the structure of modern thought where when it is a black person, you do not have to think twice you have you know to go for the jugular when it is the white human you know you have to be circumspect in the way in which you present it because now we are dealing with a human being now again when people say asia developed you know europe developed or whichever other part of the country of the world developed why don't we do like it we are robbing us our capability for thought why should you not say why don't we see it and think about our current concrete situation in South Africa and see how best we may be able to formulate for ourselves a model of society that is not this model that we live in today. Capability for thought is something that is, resides with every human being everywhere. It is not just the Asians that can think. It is not only the Europeans that can think. We can also think. People must not be lazy to think and say that we must go take ready-made models. Models can only work on the basis of concrete analysis of the concrete situation that we face. The reality that we face is a reality that requires us to say, how did we get to the point where we are? Where are we? What is the character of the South African society today? And I'm summarizing that character as a 
settler colonial society we must first undo the structure of you know a settler colonial society so that first everyone can become human in this society and then we can have a conversation do you get a conversation do you get a sense when white people are talking with black people in south africa that it is a human being to a human being no it is one that needs to instruct the other it is the one that tells the other of its lack you know, it is the one that tells the other of, you know, what you need to do in order to be like me. Now, I think that until we get out of that structure of thought, we might not be able to progress far. How, when um, South Africa became independent in 1994. Now, it is, it is clear that we have a lot of work that we need to do as black intellectuals because the reason why we think that South Africa in 1994 did not become independent or that 1994 does not represent precisely what happened in the rest of the continent in 1960 is that the history of this society is written by white people. For white people, independence, for white, the Anglo-Saxon whites in South Africa, independence came in 1909 with the formation of the Union. For the Afrikaners, it came with the formation of the Republic in 1961. Now, for us as black people, when did it come? It came in 1994 because, remember, independence is a right of a people. It's not an individual right. It's a right of a people. It is a right to self-determination that is enjoyed by a people. Now, were we, as a people in South Africa, you know, free or self-determining prior to mm. 1994? No. We only gained independence from the white settler, from a form of colonialism that is called settler colonialism in 1994. But because, because thought in South Africa has been made an exclusive preserve of white people, when 1994 came, they gave it a different nomenclature. They called it democratization. Now, democratization assumes then that you had already attained independence. You know, it assumes that all you were doing, you were democratizing a system that was just lacking in democratic precepts. Now, what that did was to remove South Africa from, or was to remove 1994 from the basket of other comparable cases of 1960. Because then, if we had thought of 1994 as marking independence, there are things that are a synchronon for independence. There are things that, things that every country that attains it independ its independence do without negotiating. When you attain independence, you restore the names you know, of your, uh, or rather you, you change the names, for instance, of your cities because you are now becoming independent. You move away from the colonial, you know, uh, names into, you know, other names. All right. Now, because we thought of 1994 as democratization, we need another process again to go back the colonizers, the white settler colonizers, before we can change the names into indigenous names. Well, let's hear from our listeners, uh, Dr. Lushaba. Do you agree? Do you disagree uh, with what Dr. Lushaba is saying? 0891-104-208. Felix is in Elspreet. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Yes. Yes. I think the argument of the professor is fundamentally flawed. I'm saying this because he has never asked the question, before the white man came to Africa, who are we? How did we run government? How did we run our society? Who really are we? Are we not running absolute monarchy in which the royal family is everything and every other person else is nothing? Is it not an absolute monarchy? Now, this is the question we must ask ourselves. Life is a journey. And because life is a journey, we must ask ourselves, what is the end point of this journey? Now, where we find ourselves now is that we are separate. We see ourselves as separate. We cannot see ourselves as the human race. So we fight among each other. White fight white, black fight white, uh, black, black. Everybody is seeing each other because we cannot see ourselves as only one race. And the end game, the end journey is for everyone to see himself ourselves as only one race. No more boundaries, no more wars to separate us. That is the only time we can develop as humans. White can never develop alone, and black can never develop alone. That is my point. And except we understand this, we will never develop as human race. All right. Thank you so much, Felix. Nsanta in Durban, good morning. Uh, good, good morning. Hi, Nsanta. Yeah, uh, yes, uh, I think the doctor is correct. 
South Africa has been living under colonialism of a special type. And uh, the remnants and the makers of that still remains with us. Uh, but the problem is that the doctor speaks of uh, intellectual. I don't think that we need more of the intellectuals. Of course, they have to be there. But we need more of revolutionary intellectuals. People who understand uh, who really are the people who should benefit in this democracy and uh, the, uh, the, 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 the life after colonialism. Uh, it's very, very important that uh, uh, we look at the role played by the ANC because in 1996, the ANC threw the RTP away. And uh, today, it, it has named the housing of our people as a settlement. It means they like this thing of uh, uh, settlers. Our people are not settlers in, in their own origin. Uh, as long as our people are referred to uh, as settlers, because now there's a, a department called human settlement, and uh, we, 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 we don't agree. We refuse to be called settlers in our own country. Thank you. Thanks, Nsansa. Uh, Bongisi's way in oh. Bombella. Good morning. Good morning. It's Cyril Bangani here from Coxted. Welcome. Yeah, is that Sakina? Yes. Yeah, Sakina, I said again, you're from Coxford. I'm a Greek from Coxford. I want to pose a question to uh, the professor or the doctor today. Uh, yes, I agree with him. He's talking about origin, uh, originality and copying. Now, uh, here's something. Uh, the ownership of land uh, is getting identified by the tool we use. I'm just using the word tool. Uh, by a title deed. And that, that came with colonization and all that, westernized people. Now, pre-colonization, what did the indigenous people use to identify ownership of land? I'm saying ownership of land of a car is a logbook, and of land is a title deed. Now, pre-colonization, what did the indigenous people use to identify land? And I want to agree with Felix and disagree with the professor. Some things I agree, but some things I don't agree. We must globally learn from each other. Yes, we must not allow a certain uh, a nation or race or nationality to uh, dominate or prescribe to us. But I want his question, what are we going to use in the 21st century to identify land? Because land is the most important thing in our lives. Thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, Sandy Len Pulukwane, what's your view this morning? Okay, how are you? Well, and you? Uh, great, man. Hey, say hi to, to Professor there. You can speak to him. Hi, hi, Prof. I greet you, I greet you. Thank you. Uh, I think it's a very, very uh, interesting topic and discussion. And, and, and I've, I've been talking about this in the corridors because I'm not a professor, you see. Um, there is this issue that you talked about. And that talks to what I always ask to say. Why don't we see the white people in this black community uh, schools? It's because the system that you're talking about, that was not put proper. And again, why don't you see them in the buggies where we see this black people or African people getting their licenses? Where do they get their licenses? And again, you also talked about settling people here and there or uh, locations and so on, RDT. And that's where you see these people. Uh, only Africans are there. You can't see any white person in the, in the taxi rank going to somewhere because of the system that you talked about. So I fully support what you're saying. I'm, I'm saying once we can re-look re into what we want to put as a nation, that will benefit the African people as well. We are not going to reach where we are going. And you are quite right. There are many things that still, including the issue of land, that still elude us as African people. And okay. we don't see those things, we are not. I think I want to say, man, where is Sakharamatimela? Uh, Please say hi to him. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thanks, Sandy Len Pulokwane. Joe in Cape Town, good morning. A very good morning to you, Sakina. Welcome. A, a good morning and a good morning to your guests as well. A very good morning uh, to you. A very good morning. I've got uh, one controversial question. 
the first one, historically, possible that we as blacks allowed ourselves to be colonized as, you, as, as we are seeing it today with the, uh, the Guptas. Are we not going to see ourselves living in a Gupta dynasty in 5, 10, 15 years uh, time to come? That's number, number one. Number two, is it possible that the uh, youth of today, especially the students, will be seeing themselves crossing the Mediterranean to go to Europe? Because the way things are going, we'll see our economy being disrupted, and there won't be any uh, prosperity for the youth that are coming. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. Professor? No, thank you very much. Let, let us start here. I do not think that the possibility of liberation for black people in this country lies in the ANC. The ANC, as a nationalist movement, lacks the necessary imagination to decolonize society. Its, problem are not, its problems are not the individuals in it. Its problems is the limiting structures of the ideology that it is internalized, the modernist ideology of thought, which says that a white person is human, a black person is not human, which says that you must plan for white people, you must not plan for black people, which says that knowledge is a preserve of white people, black people must only receive knowledge, which says that the best models of development will only come from Europe or from white people. Black people are incapable of originally thinking the structure of society they want to live in. So the problem is not individuals within the ANC. The problem is the structure of nationalism, what nationalism delimits as possible and impossible. Nationalism says that it is impossible for the non-Western people or for African people to think originally. All they have to do is to mimic the trajectory of development that Europe went through you know, in the 16th, from the 16th century onwards. So the future, if black people must have a future in this country as human beings, they have to imagine it outside of the ANC as a nationalist movement. The second point is that <clears throat> we, we must not delude ourselves. The notion of humanity as we know it today is a creation of European thought. The notion of the human as we live with it today is a creation of European thought. Now, at a time when modern European thought, you know, comes together out of enlightenment reason, you find a construction of humanity as being people who are possessed of certain characteristics. But in order for those people to know themselves as human, they define themselves relative to others who lack that humanity. So Europe's humanity of Necessity must posit other people who are not human in order for it to be able to justify itself. So that is why we teach students at university that identities are relative. You are male in relation to female. You are female in relation to male. You are white or you are a white settler in relation to the black colonized because the other validates your identity. In this case, the white person is white or is European because he or she is infused with all the characteristics of the human and the other, which is the black, lacks those characteristics. So let us not try and endear ourselves into European humanity. It has no space for us. What we need to do is to think through a different notion of humanity, not the one that is given to us by enlightenment thought. Now, a very important question about the, the Greek war, uh, from, from the Greek war, um, you know, from Kokstad. Ownership of land, and we must learn from each other. You know, th there is something that um, we, have, we have missed in the way in which we think about learning and knowledge. We think that, you know, learning, you need someone who's going to stand from, you know, the podium and tell you what knowledge is. And, you know, that person has always to be white, but geographically that knowledge must come from Europe. Then we think that the one who's at the receiving end has no capability for thought, you know, is incapable of thinking without the other. Now, when you go into that kind of a relationship, 
what you do first in order for that relationship to hold is that you must efface everything that the other who's receiving, you know, has known as knowledge. You must st- the starting point is to deny to him or her, you know, any form of knowledge. Now, we cannot comparatively learn from other people when the supposition is that we are coming into this learning bringing nothing. Comparative learning means that I bring my own strengths and you bring your own strengths and then we constitute a dialectic here as to how we may from these two positionalities, you know, bring out, you know, what is commonly superior, you know, to what we both held. Now, unfortunately, all the people who impel us to learn from Europe are supposing that you must just go to Europe or to the West or wherever and take the models and bring them here. Now, you see this asymmetry play itself out. You know, when African countries hold elections, including South Africa, the European Union sends observers to South Africa to observe our elections. When Britain holds elections, are we going to send observers to Britain and South Africa? It is because the assumption is that the learning happens one way. Comparative learning has a different structure. It can't be that, you you know, when one trajectory of learning coming from Europe. Now, on the ownership of land, very correct. Um, we aren't obviously going to be able, or maybe let's put this this way. When we say that we must be able to think originally from our position as African people, we are not searching for origins of a pre-colonial past. We're not searching for, you know, an Africa, a traditional African past that is virgin of any foreign intrusion. No. We are searching for an Africa today, in the world today, that considers us as human, that considers, you know, us as being capable of living in the modern world that we have thought out ourselves. Now, so it's not a search for, as we've said, a traditional African past that is virgin of any foreign intrusion. No, we cannot go back to that past. Now, in this situation, then it will mean answering one simple question. White people have land in South Africa because they robbed it of us as a result of colonialism. There is nothing legal about this. It is a question of justice. It is a question of historical injustice. Now, the problem is that we think about land in terms of title deeds, so we think about land dispossession in simple ways. You were either, you know, forcibly removed uh, from the location somewhere, or your family was robbed of its land and, you know, it was taken. So you must prove it legally that you were robbed of your land as the black colonized. Now, was the process of robbing us legal? The process of robbing us was not legal. You know, colon- the, the condition of possibility for colonialism is the assumption that in this part of the world dwells less than human beings and therefore you can take their land at will without, you know, any deference to norms of human justice, because these are not human beings. Now, we are not saying, because, you know, we have a different notion of being in the world that is not of the white people. We are not saying that, you know, we must go and take the land. We are saying that a more just society requires us to recognize that Black people's lack of land is a historical injustice. It's not a legal process. It's a matter of historical injustice. If we all want to live here together, we must just come together and accept that you have land as white people because you are white, because you are colonizers. We do not have land because we were colonized and robbed of our land. And once we come to well, that point, we'll then work out a modality on how you know, land ownership structure is going to look like. Very, very interesting, very thought-provoking. And, of course, we'll post uh, the tons of comments coming through on our website, safm.co.za. You'll also find uh, Dr. Luazi Lushaba's paper there that he wrote for us. And, of course, uh, you can continue to interact on the other platforms. But uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Luazi Lushaba. Uh, He's from the Department of Political Studies at the University of Cape Town, sharing with us his view on the current state of South African politics. And And uh, thanks to all of you for your great participation and, of course, to the production team. It's nine o'clock. Nomsam Duli standing by with the latest news.